Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 157, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. Possibly a side effect of COVID-19, could the role of standardized testing be reduced? And the Department of Education wants to funnel more CARES Act dollars towards private schools. Stay with us. Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, the need for substitute teachers will be greater than ever next fall. So what should districts be doing to prepare? Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here. Today is June 26, 2020, and I'm joined by my friend, principal, and co-host, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today? You know, you ask me that on every session, and I think I always say I'm great and I'm fantastic, and I want to highlight that I'm great and I'm fantastic today. Optimism has been my big thing um, for 2020, and boy, is it a year to be challenged. <laughs> it, it has been quite the year, and I actually told my son, we were walking out of Walmart or something, you know, with our pulling our mask off as we were in the parking lot, and I said, son, I really hope that you're going to look back at 2020 and be like, that was that was a year, and, and it mm-hmm. never is worse than this. And and I know it's always worse somewhere else, but I mean, this, is, this isn't the, the world that you and I grew up in. It is, we're in a weird spot it right now. It is not. But I do believe that a lot of positives are coming from it, um, mm-hmm. just in general and causing people to slow down. You, you're being forced is not a great word, but truly being forced to spend more time with family. Let's talk about when we were growing up, how we, you know, we always had dinner with family. But then with our families, where we were on the go so much that that tradition disappeared, um, family conversations and family meetings, just a lot of those things. And not only that, the the eyes are on education and, and you know, providing the, the changes and the needs to, re, to, to really meet the needs of children. So there's a lot of positives, in my opinion, that is, that's come out of the pandemic. I agree. Um, for those that don't know, we are located in the South. And to me, this past week has felt like a major I mean, I've always felt this way, but it felt like a major reality check. Um, mm-hmm. Watching the the coronavirus numbers in many places in the South, Arizona, Florida, um, Alabama, Mississippi, um, Texas, uh, it's been a little bit of an eye-opener for, I think, those people who thought maybe, you know, we're going to, I don't want to say be okay, but they thought it's no big deal. Um, I think, But I think it is a big deal. It is a big deal. And, and for Mississippi, I think um, I read on Twitter um, just yesterday with the you know high numbers coming in each day now that within the first couple of months that we were even you know calling ourselves being in the shelter in place and, and living within this pandemic, we went from you know zero to what um, twenty thousand. 10,000 cases in the first few months. Mm-hmm. And then within a 30 day period, we went from 10 to 20. And now we're slated. If it keeps going the same way in the next 15 days, we're going to be at 40 or 50. Right. And that is scary. It is truly exponential. Thousand, should growth. I say, yeah, no, it, yes. I, I see what you're saying, but yeah, it is exponential growth. No doubt. 
And and I guess I, I can't help but wonder if, you know, maybe if you rolled the clock back uh, three, four weeks ago, um, education leaders in our state and around the country might have been a little optimistic about, you know, all right, we, right. Might, we might be able to get back in there. But I think this reality check of, you know, this community spread that's happening in so many places um, may have people rethinking things. I mean, what's your take on that? I, I completely agree because anywhere from four to six weeks ago, we were coming together, developing committees, thinking about the reopening process, communicating with, you know, other states, following um, MDE and, and just trying to figure out, okay, what do we need? What will we do? And every week that went by and the numbers kept increasing, and I'll be honest, even in our sessions, it was kind of like the doom and gloom, like, is this really going to happen? We're doing all this work. Are we really going to be able to roll it out this way? And then in the last week or so, with the way the numbers are looking, it almost makes you feel, you know, completely down and, and, and having a feeling of disappointment because it doesn't seem likely that we'll even be able to do the hybrid option um, without an immediate shutdown within a few weeks of school. And that is if the numbers don't get a handle on themselves in order for us to even open up school in August. We're in quite the predicament. Um, I, I want to focus on a few stories, and I guess we'll stick with the one that's more in line with COVID-19 and, and the effects of it. And that is a story out of the Washington Post. You sent it to me, and then I saw another superintendent who I know and respect um, actually posting it on social media. And it was just the about the overarching theme of the beginning of the end of our obsession with standardized tests. And we talked a little bit about this last week, and Georgia, you know, pulling out for next year on their standardized test. And and the article looks at basically the past 20 years about how there's been this bipartisan push for standardized tests and measurements of schools and, and teachers and students. Um, we saw it with No Child Left Behind with George Bush. And then in many ways, Obama um, kind of doubled down on, on those ideas of standardized tests. Um, but it's kind of looking towards the future in this article. And it's saying like, you combine the fact that we're in this pandemic and, and people are starting to pull back and saying, hey, you know, the world's not going to end if we don't do these tests. But it's also looking at our, our leadership. It, apparently, Trump's not a major proponent. And they've kind of looked back at Biden's record. And he's not necessarily a major proponent of standardized tests. So I guess the question I have for you is, might we find ourselves over the next five to 10 years kind of backing off and not putting so much stake uh, into them? I truly believe that's what's going to happen. Because if you think about the last few months before our school years, you know, truly ended, um, we really just served kids with our virtual learning, whether you had to have packets available or if you were able to provide 100% distance learning because your school was equipped. Either way you look at it, our teachers were able to be creative, innovative, thinking outside of the box. The students actually had great participation and they, they loved the interaction. Of course, they missed their friends, they missed the social, but just being able to just focus on instruction without the pressures of worrying about a state test. I, I just truly believe we're going to end up going in that direction because of the changes that we're going to see um, go into place for education that will have to be sustained. I just don't see us going back to yesterday. I truly don't. And I, it's, it's a little bit sad to look at how the whole testing, and I'm going to call it an epidemic, <laughs> evolved from the No Child Left Behind to ESSA's regulations. And that really has not shown us that that's what's best for kids. Well, and so let me ask you this. As an administrator, I mean, there has to be some value 
for a standardized test for you? I mean, it is a measuring stick, is it not? And I mean, you, yes. you must have some takeaway there, right? Well, yes, but I think that it became excessive. I think the number of um, assessment sessions that students had to experience from grades three through eight and then in high school, I think that got out of hand. And let's not forget that over the last few years, we also started including kindergarten testing, which then trickled down to pre-K testing. That's too much. Yeah. So actually, that's funny you say that in this article, it's kind of saying like, all right, so what's the future going to look like? And one thing that it suggested that we need to do away with is protect young children by banning mass standardized mm-hmm. testing before grade three is, is what it suggests. I mean, what what is the right amount of testing in your opinion? I mean, would you say none or would you say, oh, no, we need to do this and just maybe not have, you know, all these high stakes consequences behind them? I think it's the consequences that just really change the heart and the passion that's needed for teaching. I think that superintendents should be able to be responsible for tracking growth of students and ensuring that high quality instruction is being provided in each of their schools within their district without, you know, the pressure. I mean, we know now that the number of available candidates Um, for teaching positions has just literally dwindled, okay? Mm -hmm. And when you look at teachers that have been in the the game um, from one to five years, they're leaving the profession. And and then you look at veterans who, you know, you want to hold on to some veterans as long as possible. They're going into retirement faster versus doing the 28 and 30 years. They're hitting retirement at 25 and 26 as soon as the option is available, the one- I think a lot of it is attributed to um, the accountability models and the type of pressure. And then the, the fact that it's tied to teacher evaluation. I'm not saying that we should just be nilly-willy and do whatever we want in schools. But I think we need to have a real conversation about how it appears that our entire existence in the education world is to get a particular rating versus our entire existence being about providing the most high quality, engaging, innovative instruction to increase the number of our children graduating high school, entering the work or college, you know, force. The the concern I have about this movement in terms of it actually happening is um, we know that money influences decisions that are made. And we know how powerful these testing companies have become. I think you mentioned in the last show how expensive the tests are. And I'm sure the lobbying groups are lining up um, with whoever they need to lobby, whether it's at the state or the federal level, to make sure that these tests don't go away. So, Oh, they're coming unglued for sure, because let's even step outside of the K-12 realm and let's talk about the SAT and ACT. Like those companies lost millions of dollars over the last few months that those tests were not being administered. But universities are stepping up and saying, that does not truly determine the quality of a candidate. And it also looks at equity. So we know we have gaps amongst our, our amongst our students of minority background, and a lot of those students are not being um, considered for those full scholarships and things of that nature simply behind the SAT or the ACT. Well, colleges, especially in California, have stepped up and said, you know, we're not going to require that test. We're going to still look at all of the other requirements. They might include more interviews in an essay, but they're going to look at their candidates differently, which will help them be a bit more diverse. So if that's the case and the universities have stepped up for that, and right now in the state of Mississippi to become a teacher, you're not required to take the licensure test. You need to obviously have a certain number of degrees. They're checking the coursework on your transcript and then providing you with a few key courses um, to help you step into a classroom. But if you can do that, 
then then why do we need those courses for our students to graduate? Why do we need that third grade exam for our students to in, to, to pass in order to be promoted to the fourth grade? All valid points. Um, you know, you said equity, um, kind of switching gears a little bit in an ironic fashion. Our uh, education secretary, Betsy uh, DeVos, uh, apparently has, um, first it was guidelines, and now it looks like the education department has actually put a rule in place limiting how schools can spend vital aid money. Um, but interestingly enough, um, she has kind of created the rule to very much be in favor of school districts having to give a large chunk, potentially, of their um, money to private schools. And, Absolutely. And so this is um, interesting. And this is the way NPR breaks down the options that districts are going to have. They say that there's going to be two options. And one, if a district wants to spend the money on interventions that will reach all students, not just low-income students, it must also pay for equitable services, as the department calls it, such as tutoring or transportation for all private school students in that district. So it's basically like if your district wants to spend that money district-wide, you have to give money to private schools as well. And so it says the reading of this law would increase private schools' share of the CARES Act dollars from $127 million to $1.5 billion. So that's option it's, one. Hey, what's your take on that? Frustrating. Mm-hmm. That's that's frustrating because when you think about private schools and how they operate, how they're not under the accountability measures, they're not under the accreditation measures, they kind of set their own tone and do their own thing, yet we have to share funding with them. Yeah, and I think... Um, and their endowments, you know, in most cases look really nice. So here we are, say, a, a district with at least 88% poverty, then we're sharing with you and you are on the higher end economically. Explain to me the fairness of that. Well, and I think the... The argument on the DeVos side would be, you know, we want this money to get to all students, right? But at the same time, those students could have access to those dollars by simply going to public school, right? I mean, they, they, have, they have made a choice. Um, they have made a choice to pay tuition and go to a private school. Um, and so then why should we have to share those funds when... Uh, the public school situation is so different in in regard to needs and what you need to provide for you know the students. The education department does have an option two, which allows a district to just focus those CARES Act dollars on low-income students. So it says in this case, it would only need to provide equitable services for private schools based on how many low-income students those schools serve. But here in the article, so the the challenge here is, um, I think the money can only go to the schools that receive federal Title I dollars in 2019 and 20. But the argument saying that's kind of a flawed rule is because not all schools that are eligible for Title I actually received it because of previous funding limitations. So that is a little bit of a challenge there. That's a doozy right there. Let me just say that you only need 40% of your population to be considered in poverty to be eligible for federal funds, okay? Mm -hmm. And if only 40% of your population um, qualifies for that and you choose to take those funds, um, great, you're getting to help a, a particular portion of your students and you give a little bit to private schools. But let's just jump on in there to those schools that are 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100% poverty. Mm-hmm. And you have a local pu- private school that the funding looks, you know, they're, they're not struggling in any way. They have everything that they need. Now they get even more money. You're widening the gap 
That's just my opinion. Mm-hmm. You're widening, you're, you're making the equity um, issue just kind of, you know, like a flashing light. Blink, blink, blink. Somebody needs to pay attention here. Yeah. And, and it says also that second option, it says that money can only go towards helping low income students. So that means it can't be used to like clean and disinfect the whole entire district because you're technically Where are you helping gonna get the rest of that money from. Exactly. And then it says um, you couldn't use the money to pay off um, pay for existing staff. You couldn't you do anything that's like district wide with the money. You would have to direct those dollars specifically to the low income portion of your public school and and so that's kind of a flaw so frustrating um this just kind of goes back to the testing conversation but those that are out there designing the questions they're not educators they're not in the trenches they're in the business of making money and people making these types of decisions regarding funding are not educators I, they are not in the trenches they're not truly looking at the negative impact that their decision making is going to have so yeah we'll, we'll certainly see what happens here but i don't think um i mean even in this npr article it talks about that lawmakers who actually passed this law originally did not intend it to be this way and when the department of education was saying well we may build these rules into it now that we have some control the lawmakers from both parties countered and said that the aid was intended to be distributed based on how many vulnerable low-income students a district serves and that was the original intention and this is just a way to we're in a pandemic we're in a pandemic and if you're a public school system that does not have a high number of low-income students but yet you're in a pandemic. You don't necessarily have enough devices for every child. You don't have a rainy day fund to go out and purchase the amount of PPE needed, Mm -hmm. not only the supplies, the machinery, personnel, because let's just talk about serving lunch. The time to serve lunch is going to have to be extended. Students can't come and congregate in the cafeteria and sit side by side and eat anymore. You're going to have to deliver meals. That extends the amount of time needed. You're going to need supplies to clean when you deliver, say, one class of 20 meals. You've got to disinfect that entire cart to get it back to the cafeteria. So just look at that. Let's just take uh, the academic portion, transportation out of there. Let's just look at feeding children. Mm -hmm. You don't have the funding sitting already in your district budgets to take care of that. Right. You're absolutely right. So... Keeping true to the way you started this show, let's try to find a way to finish on an optimistic note. Help me, because I'm, I'm trying. I, I'm struggling right now, but <laughs> <laughs> what you know? I guess what I will say is this: um, obviously, with the two options that are available, most districts are going to go with option one. Mm-hmm. They're going to suck it up and share their money with with the private schools that are in their area um, and focus on what they can do for the children that they're serving in their public schools. Because at the end of the day, if they did not provide us with any CARES funding, mm-hmm. we, we probably couldn't reopen schools. Hey, are you ready for today's Bright Idea? I am really looking forward to it. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is here to talk about the crucial role substitute teachers may play as we head back to school during a global pandemic. Nikki Suarez is the Senior Vice President for Kelly Education. They recently teamed up with Ed Week Research Center to study what teacher shortages challenges may lay ahead as we navigate the world of COVID-19. Nikki, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thank you. Uh, I'm very happy to be here. Uh, prior to uh, COVID-19, uh, there, I think any listener, most of our audience is K-12 educators, knows that there already was 
a, a teacher shortage uh, due to all the teacher absences that kind of pop up throughout the country every day? I, I think so. But what they don't know is to what extent. And I would characterize it as sort of a national crisis of what we were seeing in terms of a teacher shortage that's sort of been escalating in the last, I would say, five to 10 years. And so you at Kelly Education, uh, tell us exactly what you guys do. You're an outsourcing center for uh, substitute teachers. Probably more specifically, we are a workforce solutions uh, organization. Um, we are part of the parent company of Kelly Services. Um, we are Kelly Education. And in fact, um, you know, our listeners may not realize that Kelly Services back in the 1940s was the first company here in Detroit, Michigan, actually, where I'm based, that actually got started the temporary employment industry. Um, so that sort of morphed into, over time, a huge global organization of human capital workforce solutions. About 22 years ago, we got started um, just by a simple pilot with a public school district in Mississippi, uh, Gulfport, and they're actually still a client today, uh, that actually inquired whether or not we could supply substitute teachers. And so we piloted uh, the program with them. And then fast forward 22 years later, um, we are in 40 states today. And just to kind of give you um, an idea of what we do, mostly it is indeed supplying substitute teachers, um, but we also supply all sorts of other kinds of outsourced positions uh, within a school district. So it could be clerical, janitorial services, IT services, um, academic, instructional, non-instructional from um, substitute teachers in the classroom to paraprofessionals um, for special ed or special needs um, services as well. And so being in 40 states, just to give you an idea, uh, we placed almost 4 million assignments at the end of last year. Wow. And so when I think about <laughs> the teacher shortage, um, it's pretty profound. Uh, about 8 to 10% of teachers don't make it to the classroom every day. And that's really as a result of maybe a last minute illness, a scheduled professional development day, or what I'd like to say when I was a teacher, a mental health day, spring break is there, or spring fever, you know, whatever it is. And so when you think about the impact of student achievement, it's really an equivalent of a full-time teacher missing for one year mm -hmm. of a student's uh, kindergarten through grade 12 career. And so really, we don't really, as a country, we don't really talk about teacher absenteeism. And of course, the other thing that's driving uh, the absences are the full-time teacher vacancy positions that public school districts are not able to fill on an annual basis. And to give you an idea of that, our daily order demand of absences, we could average anywhere between 25,000 to 30,000 absences a day wow. that we're filling across six time zones. It's about 20%. But what is more alarming, and, and this is what really compelled me to do the research um, with Ed Week's uh, research center, um, is that the teacher vacancy shortage has been growing exponentially year after year. And it's been growing at a clip of about 25 to 30% each year. So here you are, though, you're, you're sitting here, you know, knowing that you're having this exponential growth year after year, pandemic aside, and, you, and you're watching COVID-19 unfold. And I guess you, you guys were able to buy some time because most schools shut down. But you're, you're looking at this 2021 year, and, and you've got to be thinking, what are we headed into? Correct. 
that this has got to be a major challenge for schools and even for companies like you to be able to provide uh, enough uh, educators. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, even though, I mean, I think our educators, whether they're full-time teachers within districts and schools or if they're substitute teachers that are being supplied from us, they've done a heroic uh, job, I think, in this spring semester of trying to deliver instruction virtually. Um, however, um, I, you know, we, we often talk about emergency responders, emergency workers being essential workers, grocery store um, folks who deliver groceries, you know, whatever it is. I believe that in this next phase, particularly as we reopen schools back in the fall, our teachers or anybody that's even working in a public school district or any school for that matter, including substitute teachers, are now going to become essential workers. They're sort of the next, I think, line of that. So absolutely, um, with what has happened with uh, COVID-19, is definitely going to accelerate the teacher shortage. I just can't help but think, you know, in the past, when if I were to if I were a teacher and I had a sniffle or a cough, right. I might still go to school. And now in going into next year, if you have the slightest symptom, you need to take a break and stay home. Right. And so there's just going to be that many more requests. Did the research that you guys did reflect that? Uh, I, well, I, I would say that what we are seeing is that I think that the respondents uh, in the survey are absolutely anticipating a shortage um, and even more of a further shortage. So if it's due to COVID-related illness, absolutely. You know, what was really ironic, we, we started this whole process back in December in January, just because, you know, from my point of view, what um, our findings, at least in terms of the footprint that we have, was essentially informing that we had a workforce model of teachers that was evolving, meaning that all of a sudden, mathematically, you know, mathematical certainty, we're not going to have enough teachers to teach our nation's students um, further going into this. So as we had, we had already deployed um, the survey, and then we followed up, you know, sort of with additional questions around uh, COVID. And certainly, um, I think people's uh, concerns in terms of what they were anticipating of the shortages has grown exponentially. So I think, you know, just with general shortages has now sort of morphed into a focus on, gosh, are we going to have enough teachers to start uh, at the beginning uh, of the school year? So we have a lot of teachers that might be in an age demographic that it might make it impossible for them to be there in person, um, even our own substitute teacher uh, ranks as well. So, you know, what does that even look like? Um, so, you know, just depending on how we go back to deliver services, I think has been of the utmost uh, concern. So absolutely, um, respondents were, are, are definitely concerned about it. Well, and a lot of times when anyone does research, they kind of go into it with a hypothesis and, and they're expecting certain results. But as you guys got your results back, was there anything in there that surprised you? You know, I, I think first off that what really surprised me um, was, uh, you know, we, we surveyed over 2000 people. And of that group, in terms of stakeholders, there were school board members, uh, principals, superintendents, uh, uh, human resource folks, uh, along with also finance folks of a district. And I, you know, I anticipated that the respondents that were going to sort of immediately do the survey were going to be more on the HR side of it. But what was so interesting, um, you know, a, a good portion of our uh, participants of the survey were actually school board members. 
So, so which was, which was really kind of, I thought that was very cool. Um, but obviously very top of mind right now. So it's a very talked about thing. It's a priority. Uh, so that was sort of, uh, I think, um, the first thing. Uh, the second thing in terms of really anticipating, um, the vacancy needs on the full-time teacher side, which is then, of course, driving substitute teacher needs. Um, I think our public school districts are, are definitely well-versed in terms knowing um, that they are going to have to, you know, figure out what are those solutions are going to, what, what are they going to be? Substitute teacher um, services in terms that are filling the long-term vacancies, um, you know, obviously is an interim and it's a short-term solution. So as they start to think about, you know, what po- what are the possibilities, that was really top of mind. Um, I Just to give you a couple of stats, um, 60% of our uh, participants of the survey um, basically said substitute teachers are going to increasingly are going to be needed to fill the full-time permanent teacher vacancies that they see. 71% said that they see a need for substitute teachers. It's going to increase exponentially over the next five years. And then half of our uh, respondents um, also agreed that the teacher vacancies are going to just increase exponentially year after year. So it really validated a lot of our own data of what we do on a day-to-day basis. Let's talk about solutions. I mean, what, in in your opinion, needs to be done to, to try to plug these holes? Yeah, I, you know, I think through this whole experience that we're still sort of living through with COVID, uh, there is no doubt, <laughs> you know, I'm a former teacher myself, and I have an 11-year-old. And, you know, she obviously was here and, and doing her instruction through Zoom. And it turns out I'm not a very good homeschooler. So here I am <laughs> trying to juggle things. But what it really, I think, shows us is that, you know, the value of the teaching profession is huge. Um, and so, you know, I think that when we think about solutions, uh, no doubt, and I, I would tell you 65% of our respondents said the need to increase salaries and pay not only for our full-time teachers, but also our substitute teachers is, is really critical. One of the services that we uh, provide um, is actually giving pay rate data of different kinds of industries. And, you know, in most states, very often, you might have fast food workers, garbage collectors, uh, maybe retail workers that actually earn more on an hourly basis than a substitute teacher. It seems like there's a big push for uh, a national minimum wage of of $15 an hour. I saw last week that I think Target's now paying all employees $15 an hour. Uh, Does a substitute teacher not compare with that? Uh, In many states, they don't. You know, I mean, I can give you an example, like, you know, from a daily pay rate, like, uh, you know, places like maybe in the state of Alabama, a lot of our districts pay $65 a day. So Mm -hmm. when you start to average that out per hour, um, you can ca- kind of see the the comparison. You know, just to share a little bit further in terms of solutions, um, I think that uh, a good portion of our participants also agreed that professional development was needed. Um, we certainly provide that. So whether it be classroom management, uh, best practices, techniques, um, you know, there was there's also uh, a lot of conversation around these days. And of course, with a lot of the civic unrest that we've seen in terms of more diversity and inclusion training. One of the things that we do, actually, we do a lot of work around DNI topics. One of them in particular is around unconscious bias. Uh, I think the whole notion of equity and access 
uh, to an education, I think, became very transparent during this experience and will continue into the fall in terms of those students that might not necessarily have access uh, to computers and, and bandwidth and online access. Uh, that, I mean, many of our students fell behind. I know that a lot of our substitute teachers in terms of their services um, have been needed, you know, for tutoring, you know, in terms of lost accumulative skills uh, for students. Uh, so, so definitely professional development is up there. Well, let's talk about the professional development a bit. I, I heard you say, I think, that, that you all at, at Kelly Education do provide some of that. But do the schools ever pull in substitutes or, or at least maybe the common use substitutes and try to work them into their professional development? Or would, would that just not work? Yeah, I think depending on the district or what have you, you do see great efforts to have that for the, for our substitute teachers if it if it's ours or if it's their own where they have their own programs um, to be a part of that educational community as part of the faculty. Um, and they do include them within their professional development efforts where it's applicable. So absolutely, yes. Um, so I, I'm very encouraged to see that, you know, PD – um, for substitute teachers as an extension um, is, is you know, held in high importance. So that's great. Um, the last stat I would share with you from a solutions perspective, half of our respondents um, believed that the, the increase, increased need of retention and recruitment of substitutes would be ongoing, and that perhaps uh, something that needed to be a little bit looked at a little bit further that was sort of uh, inferred uh, were alternative certification programs. So this whole notion of using workforce solutions as sort of a talent supply chain, if you will, or maybe it's an, uh, an opportunity to source and recruit from, you experience a certain individual who might have credentials, maybe they're going through to, to acquire them, but then to become a full-time teacher. But we're now seeing a lot of programs too that are actually offering alternative credentialing. So you might be a four-year degreed uh, individual, but you didn't have you didn't go through a teacher prep sort of a program. But if you take an online alternative uh, credential, let's say it lasts for about eighteen to twenty four months on top of your four year degree, um, then that will certify you as a teacher. Um, so you know it's been kind of interesting in terms of the solutions uh, that are I think are sort of coming about. Another solution that's been talked about is really. Um, what folks call uh, homegrown programs, uh, where there are very special incented kind of programs, particularly to attract candidates into the teaching profession um, that might be might be candidates or teachers uh, that are diverse. Um, you know, so we've got all sorts of examples of that as well. Well, you mentioned um, offering incentives um, to encourage retention. What makes a substitute teacher want to continue to be a substitute teacher? You know, I really think it's about their own personal sense of purpose, uh, noble purpose mission. Typically when we attract individuals into the profession is that they want to give back. Um, maybe they're looking for a second career. Maybe they're looking for flexible work scheduled kind of hours, you know, that might match, you know, maybe their kids are going to school, but they would like to do something. Maybe they're generating a little bit of an income, um, but or just wanting to work. Um, so, you know, we're, we're able to offer all sorts of things. Here at Kelly, uh, we also provide a lot of continued education. So there are a lot of benefits as well. So if an individual chooses to do that, they can. So, you know, it's been, I think, very interesting. And I think as a result of that, 
what we've been able to do within our talent pool, and there's close to 80,000 people uh, across 40 states, is that we're able to offer our public school districts a very diverse talent pool. And in fact, 50% of our uh, talent workforce actually self-identifies as being diverse. Uh, the other thing I can tell you is that we usually attract a very qualified individual. 90% of our talent pool uh, actually has a higher ed degree or if not pursuing, depending on um, the state requirements to be a substitute teacher. I, I can't help but wonder, I saw so many stories in the medical field of medical professionals coming out of retirement to help um, with surges in hospitals. Have you seen any of that at Kelly Education where you've had some maybe retired teachers coming to you all and saying, hey, I want to sign up to fill in some of these gaps? Yeah, absolutely. I I can tell you um, prior uh, to to COVID-19, definitely, we definitely employ uh, a lot of retired teachers also um, on the therapy side, school nurses and so forth. Um, Absolutely. Um, so we do see a lot of that, um, particularly when we see people who might live in the Northeast and they're snowbirds and they go to the Southeast and they might want a couple hours a day where, you know, that they can, you know, be able to still work and kind of continue their craft, if you will, um, which is kind of cool to see as well. Is the challenge for you finding enough people to fill the holes at the schools or getting the schools to work with you all and continuing to build that business? Yeah, definitely not the latter. Um, it's, our services are always in demand. They see them as essential services. Um, what I would tell you prior to uh, the pandemic, um, the challenge was really uh, getting folks to come in. I and mean, we have a great talent pool, but you know, you always have sort of turnover. But because we were in a low unemployment sort of economy where you know talent had options to, to take all sorts of different jobs, if you will, I mean, I like to think that substitute teachers are sort of been the ultimate gig workers, if you will, where they can, you know, kind of string different things that they would like to do in terms of what's interesting for them. Now, um, fast forward later, I think what we're going to see in many districts, regardless if they have an outsourced solution or not, they're going to be challenged by people um, maybe a little reluctant to take a teaching assignment only because of the healthcare risks um, that they might be facing. And so, and even though usually in a recessionary period, you know, we have a lot of people that will gravitate um, towards um, being a substitute teacher, but obviously, you know, this is a bit of an anomaly and it's a very unique situation that I think we will be faced with further challenges. Is the federal government's um, subsidy of unemployment at $600 a week, has that you think hurt the amount of people that you have to work with, or do you think that problem is going to be solved by the time you get into the fall? Yeah, I, I think I think that remains to be seen, right? So I think we we have to wait and see uh, in terms of what you know if it's going to continue or not. Could very well, um, you know. Obviously, you know we we definitely anticipate that. However, you know if we're offering you know uh, folks the opportunities to work, hopefully that they will accept those positions. I imagine you know I, I mentioned at the top that we have a lot of listeners that are um, in K through twelve education, but we probably also have a lot of listeners out there who are maybe college students working to get that degree. I mean, you guys hire those type of students. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in fact, um, we do employ uh, quite a few uh, university college level students. Um, depending on, you know, what the men's spec is to be a substitute teacher, depending on where they are in what state. 
Um, and so we love that. I mean, I think it gives them wonderful opportunities um, to experience it. Uh, and so, you know, there are also other opportunities like things like tutoring, um, which I think also suits uh, particularly with college students as well. Well, Nikki Suarez, the Senior Vice President for uh, Kelly Education, we appreciate you enlightening us. And I, I seriously would like to follow up with you later on in the year to see how the fall has been going, um, just yeah. to kind of give us an update if you're up for that. Yeah, I'd love it. Uh, are you ready for our pop quiz? Absolutely. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Okay. I have a real bias about this. So I'm a former public school social studies teacher. And over time in the last 20 years, uh, geography, civic education, government, uh, the histories have sort of taken a backseat to STEM, I think, disciplines, along with language arts, literacy, all of that. And I think we would all agree that if we could make more um, civics and geography and government less of an elective and more of a required course and have it start from the early grade levels, I think it's critical that we reinstate that type of curriculum. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Um, I think that, you know, I think maybe real life applications. So maybe more, you know, things that our students can use. Um, so like financial literacy. I talked about more uh, the need for DNI topics, particularly around unconscious bias. For us in our organization, that's the first uh, segment of training that we provide for our substitute teachers, but it's beneficial for all people of all ages. And if there wasn't a time now that we need to embed more of those kinds of topics within curriculum, I think that that's really important. I think if we taught languages at an early age, with with that being sort of packaged with different cultures um, and, you know, just the history, if you will, with the packaged with the language, I think we would have more of a richer curriculum, more, it would be more robust. What does every child deserve? Every child deserves to have access to a comprehensive education. And so for me, when I think about education, the big E of education, it's equity. And not all of our students within our country right now, I believe, have equity into that process. And what I get really concerned about, if we don't pay attention to that, and if we don't really put all of our great minds towards that, we're going to have huge portions of our society, if you will, that will get left behind. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Gosh, you know, um, I can say this as a former teacher. I really do think uh, the biggest challenge that our educators face is really um, maybe not having the support in terms of being able to do their jobs well. Also being compensated uh, of, the, of the incredible work that they do. What's the best gift to give an educator? A thank you. A thank you. And, you know, it's been really heartening to see um, just the, the, you know, in the years past where we've given our thanks to veterans, we, we're giving our thanks to healthcare workers. Well, I think the next line now is to give our thanks uh, to, our, to our teachers. And here's, here's how I feel about that. I think that when I was teaching both middle and high school, I never considered myself to be an expert of my content area. I only considered myself to be the head learner of my classroom. And we need to make sure, we need to ensure that our head learners maintain their curiosity, um, feel supported. And so that thank you, that thank you matters. 
It does. And it's free. And that's what, you know, often when you say gift, you think you have to spend money, but that thank you can go so far and cost nothing. So uh, I always like that answer. Which teacher changed your life? Ah, um, that's a wonderful question. Actually, uh, the teacher that changed my life was a gentleman called Dr. Daniel Lang uh, at Lynchburg University, where I attended for my undergrad. He was my advisor. Um, just so that the audience knows, I, you know, how I found myself into the teaching profession was really, I was a student myself of special needs. I was dyslexic. And in the early 80s, that really wasn't talked about. There wasn't really a lot of support. So by the time I went into my undergrad, you know, I kind of struggled uh, along the way. I knew that, you know, I was creative, I was bright, you know, and there were all sorts of things that I could do. I just simply did my learning in a different way. When he finally realized that I had different special learning needs, if you will, um, he actually went ahead and took himself, if you will, to a conference about special needs on dyslexia so that he could better help support me um, as my teacher, as an instructor. From there, a great relationship grew. And, you know, a lot of the teaching that I did earlier in my career was really modeled after his craft, if you will. But he was very open. I was floored that I had a teacher that actually understood me, that did that. And it really sort of paved the way for me to become an educator, to learn empathy and be compassionate and to understand that our students really are not special needs or learning disabilities. They just simply do their learning in a different way. So Dr. Daniel Lang of Lynchburg University was my all-time favorite teacher. That is a really cool story. And there's so many successful people who are dyslexic. And it just goes to show you that, yeah, it's just a matter of learning the proper way. Um, last question for you, uh, pen or pencil? Ah, uh, uh, uh. Um, you know what? Um, I actually love to, to, to write in pen. And my favorite pen to write in, believe it or not, is a medium point black fair flare uh, felt tip pen. It makes my handwriting a little bit neater. All right. Again, Nikki Suarez, we really appreciate you taking the time and, and all the great work you guys are doing over at Kelly Education. And, and again, I'd love to have you back on the show uh, once you guys kind of push into the, the year uh, dealing and navigating with COVID-19. Uh, I would love that. And I would love to share with the audience of what we find and what we see. And I really want to thank you for the opportunity today because this was a privilege to do this. So thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. And if somebody wants to you know, learn more about what you guys do, apply for a position or whatever, um, what's the best way to go about doing that? Um, you can Google us uh, or just go to kellyeducation.com and uh, all the information will be there. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.